HQ2. The phrase came trippingly to the tongues of economic developers and chambers of commerce nationwide over the past two years. It was September 2017 when Amazon announced its intent to locate a second headquarters, its first in Seattle, of course, in some other city. And that tripped off a long and much publicized competition. It was one part beauty contest, one part which makes the most sense for Amazon, one part who gives the best incentives. And one city has ended up winning. Crystal City, Arlington, Virginia, which just so happens to be a 10-minute drive from Full HQ Studios. And the man credited by many for leading the winning team that landed Amazon's HQ2 is our guest this week. Victor Hoskins will share thoughts on cities, economic development, winning, and how to succeed in business. He's an engaging personality for a special interview this week on Rule Breaker Investing. This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by Molecule. Molecule, with a K, is reimagining the future of clean air, starting with the air purifier. For $75 off your first order, visit M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com and enter the promo code FOOL75. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. And joining me today on this episode, as I mentioned at the top, two very special guests. The first I haven't mentioned yet, but he's familiar to you if you're a longtime Motley Fool fan, listener of this podcast, my good friend and co conspirator in crime, Matt Argusinger. Matt, um, certainly having worked together on Rule Breakers uh, and on Supernova over the years, you've played the Market Cap Game Show a bunch, so I know you have a lot of fans on this show. But, Matt, what are you doing these days? Well, these days, I've made a pretty strong pivot over to real estate. So, we launched uh, earlier this year, we launched our first Motley Fool real estate service. It's, uh, it's, it's called Million Acres, and we have our first premium service mogul under there. So, I'm um, especially excited to be on the podcast today with, with our guests to talk, uh, talk about, about real estate. And thank you, Matt. And yes, you know a lot more about real estate than I do, which is why I'm really going to ask you to be our primary fool today. Because joining us, as I mentioned, is Victor Hoskins. Now, Victor is the outbound director of economic development for Arlington County here in Virginia. He's the upcoming economic development chief of Fairfax County, a very big, right nearby Full HQ County as well. In fact, both of those counties are neighbors to the city of Alexandria, where the Motley Fool resides. But Victor is most notably known for successfully attracting Amazon HQ2 to Arlington County. Amazon's presence, a little bit about it here, predicted to bring 25,000 to maybe 37,000. Wow, 850? We've taken that out to all digits. <laughs> High tech jobs estimated to generate between $3.2 and $4.8 billion for the state of Virginia. It's noted that Amazon will occupy up to 6 million square feet of office space and invest $2.5 billion. It's projected to generate an additional 75,000 jobs for the region. Now, Victor has led teams over the course of his career that have created and retained. 375,000 jobs and negotiated 700 major business expansions valued at over $31 billion. I think it's safe to say that the table is tipping toward Victor on this week's <laughs> podcast. Thank you for coming in and talking with us, Victor. We're excited to hear your thoughts on economic development in the U.S. and worldwide, and investing in real estate, of course, as well. So, congratulations on your Thank new you. role, which I hear you're beginning in a few weeks. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. August 5th. Looking forward to it. 
All right. So they're really happy. They must have bid up for you to get you at Fairfax County. <laughs> they were very convincing. Which is an amazing <laughs> county here in Virginia. All right. Matt, why don't you you start us off here? Sure, sure. Well, I think I have to ask the, the burning question, the big question, and that is, of course, about Amazon. And why was Arlington, Virginia the right choice uh, for HQ2? Well, one of the things that um, Amazon was it was very clear, even in their RFP um, when it first came out, is that they were looking at um, the talent pool. The talent pool is extraordinarily important to a company like Amazon. It's been growing so fast year over year, always starting new businesses, very innovative. So they were looking for a place where they there was an existing um, you know gathering of tech workers. Um, in addition to that, they were looking for how can you grow um, a talent pipeline uh, that could feed our company and all the companies that are around us? Because they fully expect you know a lot of companies to be around them. So really, um, I would say at the core of it was talent. Um, and the way that we approached it, which was a little bit different, I think, from a lot of jurisdictions, is that we we really took in the talent of the whole region. You know, this is a region of you know, I mean, if if you look at the entire population, we're looking at a region of about six million people with about you know three million in the workforce. Um, we really concentrated on you know um, the Northern Virginia area, which is Fairfax County, Arlington County, Alexandria. Um, we also pulled in DC's data, um, Prince George's County, Montgomery County. When you look at that data nationwide, I mean, and we you start comparing it in terms of educational attainment, fifty four percent, you know, BAs in our region, um, Arlington seventy three percent of the workforce has BAs, and that it, that those numbers I think really stuck out, um, particularly when you start looking at other markets. And I think if you look at the list of twenty that they cut down to. You would see that many of those markets had also high, um, you know, tech worker um, right that existed, and then the the other part of, on the growing it, you had to have educational institutions, and we did not just say mm. when we put our our data together, we did not just say okay, the educational institutions located in Arlington, we reached all the way up to Hopkins and uh, Baltimore. <laughs> I mean, course, you know, and, you know, and all the way down to you know Blacksburg, Virginia. I mean, we just Virginia Tech. We yeah, we just said, look, um, this is a region, and it works as a region. It functions as a region, and these are all the universities that will be producing your pipeline in the future. So I think that that whole answering that talent question and the growing of the talent was extraordinarily important. There are many other factors, and I can go into those, but those were really the important ones. Yeah, because I I know it, w- it was interesting watching the whole process and the fact that you had. Virginia, D.C., and Maryland were all kind of separate bidders. They were kind of, yeah. in some ways, pitted against each other. But I always viewed it as, no matter which one won, and I'm glad Northern Virginia won, Arlington won, but it seems like it was a win for the whole region. And I think that's what you're articulating yeah, here. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, if, if you, I don't know how closely you follow the process, but we um, work very closely with D.C., Prince George's, Montgomery County. I mean, all of these, all the economic development officials in this region work very closely together. We do panels together. We share information. And when this RFP came out, we shared a lot of data, um, you know, particularly re- regional data. Now, we didn't put it all together the same way, but we did share data. Um, we also shared some of our strategy. Um, we were very open about it because we knew if one of the three of us, by the way, you know, you play the probability game, you got a list of 20. Three of them in your area. Okay, now you're one in seven. I mean, you just have better statistical, you know, opportunity there. Mm-hmm. And we also knew that from the Fuller study that you know, um, the, the Fuller Institute at George Mason University did a an economic impact study, and it showed that you know that the distribution of employees would be throughout the region, which means that you know it was going to positively affect all of these communities. If you look at the data right now, 33 percent of the jobs will actually these people will reside in Fairfax County, and it will commute to, to Arlington. Only 18% will actually live in Arlington and work in Arlington. 
and then 15% in D.C. So it's, it's actually uh, an impact throughout the region. And I don't know if you heard recently, they're talking about a 4 million square foot warehousing distribution facility in Prince George's County. Amazon is. So when you when you when you look at it, it was for the whole region. And we knew that it would you know, we knew that that would happen. It was one thing to to say it to, you know, some of the people that you work for, because they just want you to focus on your jurisdiction. But the the obvious thing to us was that, you know, fortunately, we had the state of Virginia that really was fostering the collaboration. And if you look at how this really played out, um, Stephen Moray, who is the the president and CEO of Virginia Economic Development Partnership, he really um, guided a lot of the um, the state resources that really made you know the deal happen. I mean, you know, all of us were important. I'm not saying that none of us were more important than any, anyone else. Um, but if you look at the the overall strategy, he really, um, he and his team actually, Lori Melison and, and um, Sean Brazier, all of those guys, they really helped us kind of, you know, get that overall strategy 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 together. And then in terms of collaboration, um, you know, we worked very closely with Alexandria's um, Stephanie um, Landrum, who landed Virginia Tech Innovation Campus, billion dollar campus. That's gonna um, be huge. You know, just two miles from the Amazon campus, um, she just became an incredible partner with us. I mean, when we met with the first time we met with um, Amazon, the impression that they got and and it wasn't made up. We liked each other and we were going to win together. And and I mean, when I say all, they, we liked each other, I'm including in that Fairfax County, Loudoun County, uh, Alexandria, Arlington, because we were we were all bidding, you know, basically together as Northern Virginia. Uh, have you met Jeff Bezos? Uh, no, I have not. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I have not. You met haven't him. even met the man himself. No, I have not met Jeff Bezos. I've seen a lot of videos, and that's about it. Victor, how big was this for you personally? You obviously have a lot of success. You've done a lot of this over the course of your long and illustrious career. Was this your biggest? Is this the crown gem? This is the biggest economic development deal in the history of the world. <laughs> wow. so. no, no, that's no understatement. I mean, there is no other deal that's ever been this large. Um, so, you know, it was, and if you remember, recall, it came out originally as 50,000 jobs, $5 billion in investment. It was, a, it was a very, very different number than dropping down to 25,000 to 37,850. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is that, yeah, it's still the biggest ever. And, I mean, you know, when it came out, we knew that we had to put a disproportionate effort into winning it if we really wanted to win it, and also that we had to do things differently. And that's what we did. And I want to pick it up right there, because I'm a gamer. Mm -hmm. I love games, Mm -hmm. and I love thinking about how to win. Mm -hmm. And I'm really curious, what aspects, Victor, looking back on winning, uh, involved you taking a different approach? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, Mm -hmm. approaching things, I would say, with a capital F, Foolishly going mm-hmm. against the conventional wisdom, where'd you break the rules? So this is the rule breaker investing podcast. Okay. Can you give you one or two examples of just like what you did differently that you think helped win. Okay, one one of the main things that we did differently is we decided early on with the state and with all our partners in Northern Virginia that this was not going to be a bidding game. If it was going to be a bidding game, we lost. We went out. We said no. No, this is Virginia. We're just not going to do it. It's and when you say bidding game, you mean we're not going to start just, it's not eight all about billion, the incentives. $8.5 billion. I mean, some of these jurisdictions, they, these, these, these packages they put out were just absolutely, I, I mean, look, if a company needs that much money, it probably is not going to function well. Okay. <laughs> I mean, if they need that much subsidy, you know, th- we didn't look at it that way. We looked at it as they were trying to solve a talent problem. And we were going to give them a talent solution, ah. not just for today, but for tomorrow. And really, the, the for tomorrow part 
um, was really the billion dollar investment. The state of Virginia put up a billion dollars to match innovation campuses. It, if any, any university that wanted to create an innovation campus, they're matching it dollar for dollar. In the case of Virginia Tech, um, they're putting in $250 million. That's being matched by $250 million from the state, and they're going to raise another f- half a billion um, privately. So that's going to be a billion-dollar campus. In the case of George Mason University, $125 million they're going to raise, wow. $125 million um, um, matched by the state, and they're going to look at about a quarter of a billion privately. That's a half-a-billion-dollar innovation campuses, campus. But there are other universities in the, the Commonwealth right now that are also looking at this and connecting it to not just Amazon, but to all companies in this region, because we need to produce these. We, we, the goal is to double the number of technical degrees that are coming out of our university in the mm. next 15 to 20 years. That's really the goal. But that was very different. Okay, so that, others are showing up with um, $8 billion checks, yeah, potentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so, okay, what's another example of how you did it differently than maybe some of the competitors you saw in the field? We, we focused on collaboration. We focused on working together. We, we went, so here, here, both, both Loudoun County and Fairfax County did a bid together as a joint jurisdiction. Arlington and Alexandria did bid together as joint jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. That had never happened before in history of the state. It just never happened. And by the way, I don't know where it's happened anywhere in the country, honestly. It's just, it's just not done. And that was a total... Um, you know, a backside approach because cooperate when you're supposed to be competing. What kind of sense does that make? And then sharing information. I mean, we shared so much information, it it blurred the lines. I mean, when we and by the way, you, the pitches were really very interesting. And then I remember one at one point we were talking to the Amazon executives, and and I stood up and I said, "Look, I know you want to locate in the best location. That's what we want you to do." And if that best location is Alexandria, so be it. We'll support it. If it's Arlington, so be it. You know, of course, we'll support that. But the bottom line is, who gets up and says it's okay for you to, to go across to, to the next jurisdiction? Well, nobody does. And that was foolish. And it was a rule breaker. And, and I think they were surprised. And we were serious. I mean, and, and we know that the most of us that have been in the field a while, I've, I've done both public and private um, real estate development and investment. I've, I've, I've worked in private equity on Wall Street. I've worked for real estate developers, publicly traded companies. So I've, I've been on the private real estate side, and I've been on the public real estate side. I know this. Whenever you do a project, your market does not stop at the border of a city or a county. And that's the whole thing. We, we just said no borders. That There are no borders here. What we're trying to do is we're trying to solve a business problem. That's really what we wanted to do. I'm wondering. Uh, so you're describing, you know, kind of the right, uh, right way to do economic development with Amazon, but also big, big scale developments like this. I think there's always a natural fear about, okay, well, what does this mean for housing affordability? What does this mean for we're developing all these new things? It sounds like great progress, but people get a little scared about that. They wonder mm-hmm. who's gonna who's gonna lose in a scenario like that. So I'm wondering, what are the right ways to do it, and and what is what are ways that we can alleviate the concerns that a lot of people might have about affordability with housing, mm-hmm. especially near or around uh, big developments like this? Yeah, I, I will, I'll answer the affordable housing question, but I will start with the transportation question. And the reason why is because the, there's a nexus here. So, the, this region, I've been here 24 years. This region had been talking about how can we cooperate to jointly fund metro uh, maintenance and development um, They'd been talking about it for 20-plus years, 22, 23 years. It wasn't until the Amazon proposal that they actually came together as elected leaders and found, everybody found the money and committed to it. 
Okay, that was a regional solution to a regional problem. Okay, affordable housing is a regional problem. That's the nexus here. That's why I brought it up. You can solve that problem the same way you solve the transportation problem. It has to be a. It has to be first of all to scale. You do not. You do not do two or three projects. No, you do thousands of units. You put in a housing supply, and you do it across income scales. You don't do just market rate. And a, and a lot of what's going on right now in the markets. I mean, you you, you know, you're in real estate. You know this. Um, there's a lot because of the because of the way that. Um, uh, market rate affordable housing, uh, market rate housing trades right now. I mean, trades on the institutional side. Um, I mean, I've seen I've seen four cap deals, four and a half cap. I've seen three point five cap deals. When you when you're trading like that on the institutional side, that is very tempting for that's that's all I'm going to produce because once you build it, you get it leased up three years, you sell it, and you go build another one. I mean, that's kind of what's been going on in the market. What we need to do is we need to think about the market differently, and by the way, bring in other players. Um, I think JBG has done something interesting working with the Federal City Council with this Washington Initiative. That's a, I think they're going to raise. I think they raised a hundred already. They're going to raise, I think, 200, 250 million uh, for um, for workforce housing. And workforce is not afford is not the um, for low income, but it's for middle income. And all that's been produced, well, mostly what's been produced so far in our region in recent years, is, is really the market rate high end, and that's really what we have to do. We have to provide across the entire spectrum. Now, I used to be the Secretary of Housing and Community Development for the State of Maryland. In 42 months, we produced 35,000 housing units, more than any time in the history of the state ever before. 5,000 of those were home ownership. 30,000 of those were either senior, affordable, workforce, or market rate. That's the scale you have to build at. You have to build 10 to 20 to 30,000 units. You can't build like we've been doing, you know, 200 here, 300 there. That's not going to fix it. And, and there, so that's on the one side, that's on the development side. Then on the preservation side, you really have to think about the units out there right now that are kind of they're affordable because they're older. Mm. You know, they don't have granite counters, they have formica counters. They don't have, you know, um, you know, an, a central air conditioning system, they have a window air conditioning system. Those rents are lower. Okay, so is there a way to preserve those? And so there should be a whole preservation strategy. A preservation and then across all incomes at scale, you solve the problem. I want to talk a little bit more about just housing pricing. Um, it, it involves affordable housing on the one hand, but I'll get to that in a sec. Victor, I want to first ask you, what are your predictions or projections about housing prices? People have talked about 25,000 Amazon employees coming in to Northern Virginia, but you mentioned it's not Arlington. It's actually, ironically, as much Fairfax County. But, <laughs> but do you have a prediction about just overall housing prices? I know some people locally are, are worried about that. Mm-hmm. Um, make a prediction. The fact is, there's not a large amount of inventory in Arlington County. And when there's a small amount of inventory, mm-hmm. we all know this, small supply, and there's a great demand, guess what happens? You get a spike in prices. That's just that's that's how our system functions. This is this is the free market system. Um, and the further you go out uh, from from Arlington, um, the less that has an impact. Um, and the interesting thing about our region is you go out in every direction. Because the metro system reaches into every direction. It goes east, it goes west, it goes north, it goes south. And because of that, the effect is going to actually, on a regional basis, is going to be dispersed. But, on, but, but close to um, Amazon itself mm-hmm. is going to be more acute. Now, the other thing that a lot of people don't realize is a lot of those 25,000 employees already live here. 
Okay, they're going to hire people that are here or the people that are coming out of school here. So it's not it's not like twenty five thousand people are coming from here. Seattle, right? Right. right. That, that's not happening. So that's also going to moderate the impact. Um, and then the third thing that's going to moderate the impact, which is you know, I mean, it's, it's probably obvious to, to everybody sitting here, is that not everyone has the same set of needs. Um, I, I, I'm not a millennial, so I am not going to. Um, be within you know four blocks of work. I don't want to be okay. Um, <laughs> this is the last thing I want. Um, th- there are you know there are people that are you know that need a backyard um, because they have a dog and, and kids. And and by the way, millennials are now entering the the, the household formation time. And because of that, they're going to be looking further out. That's one of the reasons why the numbers play out the way that they do in this region. Um, you know, thirty three percent in Fairfax County, eighteen percent in you know. Arlington County and 15% in D.C. That's because of the way that people are settling and who these people are. Um, that, that's why that prediction has come out that way. So I expect it, it, it to really be acute and, you know, really at, at near the epicenter where, where they're, they're going to be located is okay. the highest spike and then dissipated. So concentric circles, but you're yes. pointing out it's a, it's a big region, so it really does go out in every direction. It's mm-hmm. not just to the north or the south or the east mm-hmm. or the west. Okay. And then I wanted to just go a little bit more on affordable housing. So I'm of two minds about this, and I'm just... I'm kind of confused myself about how to think about things. Um, on the one hand, I would think that if you are in a city, it's a good sign if housing prices are going up over time. That feels like growth. That mm-hmm. feels like what we'd all want. If you're going to be a property owner, wouldn't you want it to go up over the next five or ten years, mm-hmm. not down? There are cities in America, I um, cartoonishly imagine Detroit might be one of them, yeah. where prices, uh, some over the uh, past decade or so, have, have gone down. Mm-hmm. That doesn't sound good to mm-hmm. me. But the other half, and we have a lot of young employees here at The Motley Fool mm-hmm. as well, um, People are worried about prices going up, mm-hmm. getting priced out, mm-hmm. or um, having some of the uh, lower-paying jobs that are important jobs to make a city function. And all of a sudden, you know, you're asking the people who are, let's say, cleaning the streets to come in hour plus away to get their job done in the big city. And that's not just a Washington D.C. story. That's yeah. true of so many cities across America. So, how should we think about housing? Do we want prices to go up over time? And what does affordable mean? Okay, so so a couple of things. One, growth is is what drives our our economy in the United States. And when our um, economy doesn't grow, um, unfortunately, um, cities decay, counties decay, places decay. Um, I think about places... I grew up in Chicago um, part of my life, and I think of Gary, Indiana. And even though Gary, Indiana and Chicago are very close to one another, the unemployment rate and poverty rate in Gary, Indiana is extraordinarily high. It's in the 30s. I mean, that's that that is a... And it's partly because their industries didn't change. They did not continue to grow. Mm-hmm. They stuck with steel. Steel mm. collapsed, and then you get that outcome. Uh, Detroit with the auto. Um, you know, people don't realize this that you know, Silicon Valley was farmlands when Detroit was at its zenith. Mm-hmm. But look at it now. Mm-hmm. So you have to have growth. Okay. The question is, how do you do it in a way that you can provide? housing for the service workers because that's what you were talking about people who clean, you know work in the hotels people who work in the food service industry you know some of your young people and staff and for the high income how do you how do you provide that and the way that you do it is kind of opposite of what people do. so let's talk about breaking a rule here you know people don't want to build densely in this region wrong you need to build densely, particularly around metro stations I will say you know and when I look at Arlington that they've done a, they've done that right. 
they've done that right. You go to our station areas, half mile outside our station areas, it is dense. You mm-hmm. go uh, three quarters of a mile, it drops lower density. If if we if we if our whole system was set up that way, the and we allowed developers to build, mm-hmm. um, and, and and were more flexible with the, our zoning and maybe did something like incent them to do affordable units. Say, you know, for every one affordable unit you provide, we give you total free density. You know, 1,100 square feet, 1,200 square feet for that unit, okay? And that will lower their cost of delivering that unit, which allows them their performance to work because the NOI has to work. NOI, net operating income has to work or you can't finance it. I mean, and NOI, net operating, operating income. income. has It has to perform. If it doesn't perform, throw the deal out. I mean, you just don't do it. So, so the, there needs to be some some reasonable um, mechanisms in the market that allow that growth. And the thing is, we've been hampering growth, and we do it in many ways. Um, we do it by you know you know zoning an in, you know an entire you know neighborhood you know single family lots. By the way, everybody doesn't want a single family lot. I don't want a single family lot, and I'm I'm, I'm you know I'm I'm an empty nester. I want a condo with full service and a concierge. <laughs> you know, I want somebody. I want somebody. I want everything. I want my car to be in an air conditioned environment. Come on, this is this is what happens when you get older. But you know what? The people who want single family lots, then that that's you, you can't make that an entire region, and that's that's a lot of what happens in America. You look at L.A. That's L.A.'s problem. There are entire cities in LA that are single family. You know, I work for a company that built a lot of I work for New Holland and Farm in in LF. And um, we built enough units for 180,000 people to live in. I would say 80% of them were single family. And we carved up a lot of hills to do it, and I don't think that's the right way to do it. You know, we need to build more densely and admit it and just build at scale. Yeah, it's it's. I'm glad you brought this up because it seems like such a paradox. You have you have cities. You mentioned L.A. You have cities like San Francisco suffering from enormous density problems, right? And 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 everyone agrees that it's a big problem that there's just not enough supply of new housing. But then you ask people, well, okay, let's then let's block, knock down this city block and build high rises. And they're like, no, 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 you can't do that. These beautiful houses are right there. You can't take them. Down. That's the problem. <laughs> so we, I I don't even know how, how do you how do you break through that. Well, the thing is, I, I think part of it is, is being thoughtful about um, the way that you plan. And um, if you look at some of the, some of the plans that are coming out in, in, you know, in, in Fairfax County and the, the counties that are outside, you know, a lot of the counties outside of the Beltway, because they have the chance to do it, the way they're planning around their metro state stations is higher densities, more walkable, more placemaking. That's what needs to happen. I mean, Reston is becoming a very, very nice place to be, um, and that's the kind of that's that's the kind of focus that you need to have. And not everything car oriented, and and you know that's been the history of Fairfax, and that's the history that I think is is, is being changed right now. It's being turned. A turn is happening. So speaking of uh, NOI incentives, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned places like Detroit, Gary, Indiana, mm-hmm. that are kind of suffering from you know just lack of investment for so many mm-hmm. years and underdevelopment. So last year's tax cuts, these the the new opportunity zone initiative was kind of was was part of this. Just the regulations were just finalized. But just for RBI listeners who don't know or haven't heard about opportunity zones, they're really very interesting from an investment perspective. In other words, as an investor, you can take a capital gain really from any asset, stocks, other real estate you might have, any securities. You can roll those capital gains into an opportunity zone, defer the taxes on them, and then. In addition to that, which is already a great incentive, any gains from that opportunity zone investment are tax 
debt-free, essentially, if you hold the investment for 10 years. So, we're actually recommending an opportunity zone that's in Atlanta in our mobile service in a couple of weeks. Um, I'm really excited about it. I toured the property last week. Uh, but the it's a huge incentive, and I'm just wondering, what do you think about opportunity zones? Do you think they'll be successful? They're really new. They're just kind of really exploding now because it, the regulations were finalized and developers are kind of rolling them out. Do you think that that's going to make a positive difference in a lot of places? I think it is. I think absolutely it will. And and the criteria that they use to establish the opportunity zones is probably part of the reason why I think it's appropriate because they're looking for places that were underinvested. They're looking for places that have high unemployment. I mean, where do you want to change it? If you can bring jobs to a place where there's high unemployment, that's probably the right thing to do. Um, so I, I think the program was creatively designed. Um, you know, the regulations have been—they're always hard to do. I remember the New Market Tax Credit Program was the same way um, when they first established that. And actually, even the Low Income Housing Tax Credit—people don't even remember this. Um, LIHTC, back in the day, it was a beast to get the regulations done. But once it was done, and once it was—you know—people understood the rules. Um, and the regulations and the seven-year carry forward and all of that, it was very clear that it is a once it gets institutionalized, it should be pretty productive. So I, the short answer is, yeah, I think it's a good thing. Absolutely. Uh, well, so I, if, if we can allow a quick interlude, we have Spencer Brody, who's an intern with us. He's watching the the, the podcast taping right now, and he had a, he has a question as a young man in his uh, in his early twenties, I imagine. He said, "With younger people, it seems that renting is a lot more popular than buying. Part part of that is probably because of just." The, the buying a house is expensive. There's not a lot of them. We talked about kind of the supply demand dynamic there. Um, do you think this is going to change the way development happens across cities? Just because it seems, or do you think this is more of a temporary thing? In other words, it's you know, renting is just an option right now because of the affordability problem. Maybe that could solve over time, and, and and the millennial generation, the younger generation, looks like other generations. Or do you think there's a real trend towards higher renting now, especially since? Going back to 2008, the the crisis there with with the housing. So, yeah, well, there there are a couple of things at play there, and I think you've you've nailed a, a couple of them very clearly. One, this is a generational um, change. I mean, this shift to, to to the focus on renting is a generational change. So it's real. It's real. Okay. And hmm. um, the thing is, though, eventually that generation gets older. They get married. They have children. Um, millennials are getting married later. And by the way, married longer, which is really wonderful. And um, family formation later. Which means that this is kind of a delay. So I don't think that it's going to go away from home ownership, but it definitely is going to be delayed. And and I think that's what we're seeing in the data. In terms of the you know the current you know tendency toward um, wanting to you know to live close to work, you know pay the you know pay the rent instead of carrying a note on a on a house. I absolutely understand that. Um, and if if you look at that the generation, they are really um, clever in many ways. They believe in shared assets. I mean. The the fact that so many millennials use Uber, um, you know, Airbnb. You know, I, I have my daughter's a millennial. Um, they use Airbnb instead of hotels, and you know, they use hotels when in, in some cases, but 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 generally when they go like to a foreign country or something, they're using Airbnb, which is really an amazing saving. So, so they are creatively, I think, understanding the need for shared assets. You know, the car to go, and you know, the whole scooter thing. The, the life, bike, life is bike so share. different for them than it was. It, it really is. <laughs> it really is. But but if you think about it, you know, seven hundred bucks a, a month for a car. I mean, essentially, that's really what it roughly costs you, 700 bucks to have insurance, park it, you know, maintain it, etc. That's a lot of net money. Okay, let's go 30% tax bracket. That's, that's a grand. That's 12 grand gross money. 
that's a lot of money, guys. And you can use that money differently and invest it. So for me, I think that the clever millennials are saving some of that money and investing that money. So that to me, that's really kind of the you know the the clever thing. When I first um, got out of school and I was a young family, I bought a house and I renovated it and I owned that house for three years and sold it and made a profit. That's what um, we were doing when I was young. Okay, that's happening now in Baltimore. That's happening now in parts of um, of Washington D.C. Less and less every day because you know the price of real estate is going up so much. But that kind of th- that people have that strategy. I mean, so there are many choices that they have. But I think going back to your question, which was, you know, is it generational? I'd say yes. Is it going to change? I think it eventually revert back. But I think the home ownership style is going to be very different. I see more townhouses, more condo living um, as as, an, as the you know acceptable form and more of those kind of those. Um Urban walkable areas that yes. aren't, aren't necessarily in cities, but they're kind of adjacent to cities and mm-hmm. places like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, we'll continue with Victor in a minute. But first, this episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by Molecule. Molecule is reimagining the future of clean air, starting with the air purifier. Molecule has introduced a breakthrough science finally capable of destroying air pollutants at a molecular level. Now, those of us with allergies, whether it's pollen or other things, particularly grateful for Molecule. I myself have bought one. Molecule's technology has been personally effective, verified by science, but most importantly, tested by real people like you, me, and some of our other fools around HQ. Molecule's given allergy and asthma sufferers around the country an all-new experience. It's easy to use. It has a clean, sleek, and modern design from the materials used on the device, like its sleek, solid aluminum shell that fits in any room of your home. One customer has reportedly said that after using Molecule in her home, that she was able, quote, to breathe through her nose for the first time in 15 years, end quote. For $75 off your first order, visit molekule.com and enter the promo code FOOL75. That's molekule.com, promo code FOOL75. So, you're, you've, you've kind of had a front row to the housing market for, for decades, yeah. seeing the ups and downs. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, you know, we've been roughly in a decade now, where a decade of bull market in the stock market, uh, not quite as long for a bull market in the housing market, but it seems like it's, it's, it's felt like that for now. And so, I wonder where you think we are in the cycle. I mean, housing prices have certainly bounced back in most places. Mm-hmm. In, in a lot of cases, we're a lot higher than we were even in 2005, 2006 before the, before the crash. So, how do you feel about where we are? I mean, is this you know a lot of investors are always kind of looking around the corner, thinking, "Ah, oh, the next crisis is right around the corner. What do I need to do?" I mean, hopefully that's not the case, but I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. So back in, I remember back in 2014, um, I was I just wrapping up my work in um, in the District of Columbia, and I was headed to come to Arlington in, in, in 2015, and I was leaving Ar- D.C. headed to Arlington, and someone said, "You know, Victor, you know you're really going at a bad time. You know the economy is just about to collapse." <laughs> And I said, "Oh, really?" And you know, the, the thing is that you know, if you if you there's so much good data out there these days, and you know, your organization is one of the great data sources. I use it myself. Um, the you know, Bloomberg. You know, there's so much data out there. You, you you can get your hands on anything that the Fed is doing at any point in time. I think that that data has really kind of taught us something. And I think one of the things it's taught us is that you can't predict when it's going to happen, but you can. You, you can actually hedge against the, the the negative externalities. So, you know, we know what froth looks like now. 
I mean, we do. I mean, I, at least I do. When listen, when I see a stock go up 150, percent I pretty much go, I'm done. <laughs> I'm out. You guys can stay there. But that's the. But but that I think that you really have to begin to think of real estate, and I think this people have done this um, in a very pragmatic way. Um, and I mean, there's so many choices these days. You can buy in other locations. Like you could you could actually buy in Baltimore, live in Baltimore, commute to DC. That's yeah. what I. That's what I did. Kind of rule breaking way to do it. Yeah, that's yeah. that's what I did when I first came here. Actually, the first I think you know ten years. That's what my wife and I did, and then eventually we moved into DC. But the point is, there's so many choices, and you have to be smart about those choices. But I don't. I'm not going to make a prediction and say it's going to blow up because I don't think it is. I think that what you have a Fed that's sensitive. Um, you have a president that wants growth. You have a Congress that's sensitive with election coming up. <laughs> I think that I think that right now I think we're okay for a good twelve months. <laughs> I'll take right, it. I'll take go. it. I'll take it. So I mentioned earlier that I wanted to talk a little bit about success, and we have a lot of people who listen to this podcast hoping to become more successful as investors, certainly, but many of us as professionals as well. And the great Warren Buffett line: "I'm a better investor because I'm a businessman." Buffett said, and a better businessman because I'm an investor. So there's so much connection there. Victor, if you will indulge us for a little bit, I'd love to get just a short course from you on a couple of topics about how to succeed in life. And the first one, so I think it was like 60 to 90 seconds from Victor Hoskins, short course, how to succeed. Let's start with in real estate. Um, make sure that you buy low. <laughs> that's, the, that's the bottom line. Every All money is made in real estate going in. You know, people think that you make money in real estate, you know, when it, you're assuming it's going up. No, you make your money going in. So, okay. So buy as low as you can. All right, good. Uh, so, there's a short course in real estate. How about a short course in economic development? Now, this is, you've made a career in that. It's related to real estate, but think about a young person. Maybe you, sounds like you're a dad, sounds mm -hmm. like you're an empty nest mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. So, what do you say to your kids if somebody's saying, hey, I'm really interested in my city mm -hmm. and in urban and economic development? Short course success. Make sure that you measure um, returns. Most most cities don't measure returns, and everywhere I've been, I've brought in um, economic models to measure return. So I can relate to that because one of my big stickler points here on Rule Breaker Investing is always be scoring. Yeah, always score. A lot That's of people right. buy a stock they don't actually keep up with how it's done or how it's done versus the market mm -hmm. or how your portfolio is done this year. Mm -hmm. So I love scorecards, Score. and that's what I'm hearing from you. Yes, absolutely. You got to have a you have to have a scorecard in economic development. So in other, so in, I'm sorry. So in other words, what you're saying is a lot of cities, a lot of agencies will say we're just gonna, we're going to invest 100 million dollars in a housing right. fund, right. build these. Build public housing or invest in housing subsidies, but yeah. they only, five years later they never look back and say, "Okay, how did that actually do? How did we actually? What, what kind of return did we get from that? Yeah. How many people are actually living?" Yeah. And, you know. Absolutely, or even invest in companies. I mean, they you know they may want to attract a company, and they you know they, they say, "Okay, we're going to invest you know five hundred thousand dollars in this company," and they don't really have um, a set of performance metrics. Mm -hmm. They don't they don't look for reporting. They don't have a scorecard. Um, we measure my team measures everything. I mean, I I will not like a, I'm a bit of a I'm a bit parsimonious, my wife would say. <laughs> I'm not cheap. I'm just parsimonious. <laughs> I'm value-driven. That's what I like to say. I'm a value-driven investor. But that, that attitude about measuring is, is extraordinarily important in economic development. All right. And one more short course. This one's just about business itself. Or if you like life, because mm -hmm. how we live and how we work are connected. Mm -hmm. But, Victor, a few thoughts, short course, about how to succeed in business. Mm -hmm. Save 10% of everything that you make. 
I think that is a simple formula. I've told so many young guys this. If you can save 10% of what you make, and I mean 10%, I don't mean 3%, I don't mean 4%. And look, start with 1% the first year, you know, 2% the next year. And by the way, you, if you get a raise, you know, drop that all into that percentage, but get to 10%. If you save 10% and then invest that 10%, you will be wealthy. All right. Well, thank you for that. You know, I've got a few more things coming out of this conversation. I just want to ask and hear from Victor about Matt. I bet you do too. Let's play ping pong. Let's do it. And I'm going to go first. So I'm just going to try to phrase on you, and I just want to hear your perspective, word association with this phrase, Airbnb. <laughs> Uncomfortable hotel manager. <laughs> it's got to be. I mean, that's it's complicated. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, have you used Airbnb yourself? I haven't. Are you pro or anti? Airbnb. I'm I'm neutral because I think it provides supply. Yeah, good point. How do you feel about uh, casino development? Just because that has been in a lot of instances the way a lot of regions have sort of said, okay, this is our economic development, this is our revenue generator, casinos. And then we just, you know, MGM National Harbor opened a few years ago. Mm -hmm. By all accounts, I think it's been a tremendous success for this region. Mm -hmm. But how do you feel about casinos in general? Well, casinos in general, as far as I'm concerned. If you have been, if your community's been thoughtful about it, and it's something that they want, um, and they have gone out and they've measured the return, they've analyzed the return on the investment, and it is a it is a net gain for your jurisdiction. I think you do it. Um, but you, if you haven't been thoughtful, and a lot of jurisdictions aren't, they just kind of rush into these things because they think it's you know, the flavor of the day. Um, th- that's a problem. That's a problem. All right, ping pong back to me. Mm-hmm. New York City. So I thought that Brooklyn also won, or oh, yeah. what happened? What there? exactly <laughs> happened with New York City and what Amazon did with the other half? I thought of HQ two. So New York City. So I was actually on a panel with uh, one of the um, senior vice presidents from uh, from New York City's economic development, and um, you know, I got to be honest with you, I know it was difficult for that team, you know, to lose that deal. Um, but there, I think there's a kind of an admission out there that there probably should have been more um, uh, more participation in in the discourse on what was going to be permitted, how it was going to be provided with all the elected um, levels. One of the things that we did positively in this region, and like I mentioned it earlier, with the, working with the state, is we worked very closely with our elected officials, and we kept them as informed as possible. Now, we couldn't tell them everything, but we told them everything that we could tell them. And so, there were, there were no surprises for them. Um, I think that there were some, some surprises for some elected officials in, 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 in New York, and I think that was part of it. And then there was a community backlash. I don't know if you saw the surveys, but 70% of the people, from what I understand, wanted it in New York. And, and they ended up not having it, which is just astounding how the general public really wanted it, but it ended up not happening. And that has to do with how you provide information. And I, I, I wish that um, you know, we could have provided more sooner. But just to let you know, the day that it was announced, we put everything online, everything. We put our proposal, our first proposal, our second proposal, by the way, first proposal over 250 pages, second proposal is 1,100 pages. Um, we put um, our the economic impact study from uh, George Mason um, University. We put the um, information that we had shared with, um, with our board. We put everything online. If you had a question, you could get it answered. New York didn't do that. So you have to have a you really have to communicate as much as you can. I think that was just it. Kind of related to that, but a little different. I mean, how what is the role do you think that social media is playing in the way decisions are being made? Because I think a lot of the what happened in New York was 
all over social media, all you heard was about, oh my gosh, Amazon's coming in. They're you know they're gonna they're gonna wreck housing. They're you know they're not gonna hire any local people. I mean, it's just gonna be it's gonna do more damage to the region than it's gonna be do positive. And I think by all accounts, we would all probably at this table agree that I think Amazon's gonna do more good in Tw- places they go than twenty-seven billion for New York. Uh-huh. Right. I mean, so <laughs> well, how it's amazing. And the, the way you talk about information, the way information shared and mm-hmm. and and. You know, distributed today is so much different now with social media. Do you think that's it's become a little bit of a detriment to how decisions are being made? Well, I think it's I think it's affected all decision making um, because a single person or a group of people could really push 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 a message or an agenda out that's counter to the interests of the public. I mean that that just is a fact. I mean we don't have to go into any of that here, but but we know that's a fact. So the question is, I think for particularly people in my industry and in economic development, how do you provide um, enough information and enough of a communication strategy where you're keeping people informed about the truth, about what is news and, you know, and separating that from the fake news. Because the fake news was that, you know, Amazon was walking away with $3 billion. The real news was that they were going to bring $27 billion. Hmm. I mean, that's the real news. And so... All right, Victor, next one up for me is, uh, we've talked understandably a fair amount about our local jurisdiction now. Rule Breaker Investing, we have people in every state mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. increasingly every country listening mm-hmm. to us right now. What are some other cities that you admire, that you think nationwide or maybe internationally really understand economic development? Mm. That's a good question. Well, I mean, you know, this is a, this is a very different, I mean, it's because it's a very different system. Um, Copenhagen. Um, I think they've just done a brilliant job um, with, you know, the use of bikes, um, with the use of mass mass transit, um, with accessibility. Um, I mean, almost anyone. I mean, if you're if you're a citizen, you have access to almost everything good. I mean, it's really kind of a cool place, not just to visit but to be. Um, I, I felt the same way about uh, Stockholm. Um, I, I thought it was. A, I think it's the same, um, which is amazing. I was in. Um, I'm trying to. I'm trying to think of. Um, so Lisbon is a place where I really uh, was kind of surprised. Um, pricing great, food incredible, um, environment good. Had seen had seen to have a pretty strong economy. Um, I was really quite impressed with with Lisbon. On the U.S. side, um, I think I think there are cities like Chicago um, that have great great days ahead of them. You know, they get a, they get hold of some good leadership that it can be transformative. What um, is it about Chicago that has you saying that? The infrastructure, it's just it's just the infrastructure is unbelievable. Transportation infrastructure. You want to get around in Chicago? All you need is a you know a bus pass, train pass. Um, you can ride the L, you can ride the bus, you can ride the metro, um, you can ride a bike. You can ride a bike from the north side to the south side and not hit a street. Just driving along the you know the outer drive. There's a there's a bike path that runs almost I think it's like 12 miles. I mean it's unbelievable. Um, and then they have a great university, you know, set of universities there, IIT, University of Chicago, um, you know, the, of course, the boot school. <laughs> I mean, they have some great Northwestern University. I mean, it really has, I think, a lot of incredible things in place. They just need a, a, a little bit more leadership. I love that Victor said Copenhagen, Denmark, because that's where I studied abroad in, in college. I love the <laughs> I city. I didn't remember that. <laughs> that's great. That's awesome. Fantastic city. Uh, so, being, you know, you mentioned being a kind of a value driven investor. Mm-hmm. If if you if there's a young real estate investor out there who's starting out saying I, I want to I really want to build a career in real estate, mm-hmm. where in the country should he or she go? Let me okay. So where 
where, where should they go? Like where you, where? Well, they, I mean, where do you think there might be value in? in okay, if there's good. if there's I got whether it. it's housing prices are low there yeah. and it's it's up yeah. and coming. Or, yeah, you know. I, I got to tell you, I think that um, I think Raleigh. I think, I think Raleigh is an amazing market. I think it is. I think it's just. Um, I think you can go in, you can buy, you can renovate, you can um, build yourself a small portfolio at a reasonable price. Um, I think Chicago. I think the South Side of Chicago is like wide open. There's so much inventory on the South Side of Chicago right now, um, and the pricing is just. I mean, you can buy you can buy a house for the price of a car. Sixty grand gets you a house in Chicago, on the South Side. I mean, that's so. Yeah, so cities like that, um, I, I think that those are the the real opportunities. Baltimore, mm-hmm. I think Baltimore is like an undervalued stock. You know, I mean, really, it is. It, again, it's that it's that inventory that's there. Um, you know, the bigger cities, Los Angeles, too late. Um, you know, San Francisco. You know, some parts of Atlanta are opportunities. Um, New York, forget it. Just New York, just <laughs> never. Don't go near New York. <laughs> just you just can't get in. I'll just mention a lot of the cities you you talked about: Raleigh, uh, Atlanta. They they're actually in some of the lists I see of where a lot of investments going. So yeah, uh, makes sense. Nashville's another one that comes up a lot as a place oh, where a lot fan, of fantastic. a lot of capital's going. Yeah. All right, last round of ping pong from you and me. Mm-hmm. I'll go first, Matt. Uh, so Victor, to close. What what is a, a, the biggest misconception in your mind that people have about either real estate, real estate investing, or economic development? Where do people? What are people getting wrong? Okay, <laughs> now real estate investing. Now let's talk about it on a like if you're going to be a real estate developer, for example, that's a long game. Okay, that is a long. People think it's a short game. That is a very long game. That is a seven ten year. Game. If you are going to be a real powerful real estate developer, this region has some of the best real estate developers in the country. D.C., Los Angeles does, um, New York. Um, you know the larger markets tend to, um, but most of those guys have built that over time. They built it, and I think that the, the misconception is is that time is not very important. Time is extraordinarily important. The second, um, on the on the economic development side, I think that they think that most economic development organizations just kind of buy deals. So um, I'll just say for the last the, in, in Arlington, I've been there for um, a little over four and a half years. Um, Two hundred and sixty-one transactions, we incented twenty-one. We provide incentives to twenty-one out of two hundred and sixty-one. Less than one in ten. Less than ten percent. And by the way, some of those were like sixty thousand dollars. That was the whole investment because they're small companies. We invest in small companies as large as big companies. But the bottom line is that they—that's the misconception—is that that economic development people just go out and they, that's not what we do. Last one for me. I, so if you've you've had success in both the private and public sectors, if you're someone who spent most of your career in the private sector and you're thinking, okay, how how can I get involved? How can I make a positive difference in the public sector? But I'm afraid of all the bureaucracy and all the red tape, and I, I, I'm a person who likes to move fast and get things done. Is there a place where a private sector person can plug in, maybe on the real estate side or business side, and make a difference? You know, these um, economic development organizations, they need um, commissioners and boards to help run them, because a lot of them are private nonprofits. Um, I have a commission in, in Fairfax County. There's a commission, and it's they're all private people. Um, so that your expertise um, in real estate would be extraordinarily valuable. Um, 
I would say that if you wanted to take the dive and get into, you know, uh, an organization, I would recommend a private nonprofit as opposed to one that's right in the government agency because it will be extraordinarily slow. And it does. And it is you have to get used to it. I mean, it's something to get used to. So um, but I wouldn't recommend anyone who is I mean, like I went from Wall Street I called it to Main Street. I went from my job as a senior vice president at Urban America to work as a secretary of housing and community development for the state of Maryland. Let me just tell you something. That was a long way. <laughs> and boy, was it that, that first six months was mind numbing. But I got used to it and I figured it out. Um, and, you know, after that, I went back to the private sector, by the way. <laughs> so, but then I, you know, then I eventually came back to the public service. So I, I go back and forth, but it does take some getting used to. Well, Victor Hoskins, you've been very generous with your time. Congratulations on your new job, uh, opening up in August for you with Fairfax County. Very lucky county to have you. We're glad that you stayed in our region. Thank you. And thanks for all the value you brought, uh, in particular for those of us in the greater D.C. area. I think Amazon is an amazingly great development for this area, and uh, and you are to be thanked by all of us, but also for your wisdom and insights for all of our listeners globally. So, thank you, Victor. Full on. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Well, my thanks again to my two special guests this week, Victor Hoskins, of course, a new friend of The Fool, and very generous with his insights, appreciated his energy. And Matt Argusinger, of course, my good longtime friend and compatriot, and uh, The Motley Fool's Million Acres, which is now a sister company for us here at The Motley Fool, and its Mogul product is the first product. I don't think it's necessarily open for purchase right now, but it pops open at different points, and I'm really happy to acquaint all of my listeners with Million Acres, because as much as I love the stock market, turns out it's not the only place that people can make money, can put in their savings, and do well over time. Real estate is one of those, and Matt and his insights, guided by people like Victor Hoskins, people who we listen to and learn from, um, all in service, I hope, of better real estate investing for you, if that's an interest of yours. So, we don't do that every week on Rule Breaker Investing, but it was a delight to have a little bit of a different vibe on this week's show. Next week, well, I'm still adjusting my hours from getting back from China and Hong Kong. Um, I'm just two days removed from flying back home, so it's one of those where I went to sleep last night at 9.30 p.m. and popped awake at 1 a.m., ready for work. So, that's where I am. But I had an amazing experience, and I hope some new insights about the world at large from having spent the time that I did in China and in Hong Kong. And next week, I just want to talk about it, open up the mic a little bit, and think out loud about finally, at the age of 53, for the first time, getting halfway across the world and seeing an economic power and thinking about what that means for our investing. So, thoughts on China and Hong Kong on next week's Rule Breaker Investing. Thanks for listening. Fulon. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.